So our series is, is Intersections, Where Heaven and, uh, Meets Earth, The Seven Signs of John, The Seven Signs of John, and we're, in, we're, uh, we're at number six here, and the title of this message is Sin, Suffering, and the Savior, and this is Jesus Healing a Man Born Blind, and this basically, it's interesting because this particular sign encompasses the entire, it, it takes up the entire ninth chapter, John goes into it in great detail. We read the first part and kind of left it at a, at a place where there's a bit of tension, and it goes on and continues on, and there's the interaction between the Pharisees and the man, and then the Pharisees and the man's parents, and then the Pharisees and the man again, and then Jesus' final wrap-up on that. And I think that we'll end up probably spending a lot of time in the first couple of verses because there's something in here that I think is very applicable to us, and I think it's very important. I think that there's a reason why it's a part of the discourse. But John takes this entire chapter to describe this miracle and both the antecedents of the miracle, what happens before it, and then the subsequent reactions. The synoptic gospels, when I say synoptic gospels, you know I'm speaking of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all three provide a kind of synopsis of Jesus' life and ministry. John uses a different literary approach, much more evangelistic and much more, uh, much more targeted toward a certain literary objective in the way that he arranges the gospel. And the, the synoptic gospels all present Jesus' miracles as being performed out of compassion. Whereas John conveys them uh, in terms of Jesus demonstrating his power and his glory. And it's not to negate Jesus' compassion... Neither is it in the Synoptic Gospels to negate the power and glory, but both are important because everything that Jesus does, he does out of the love that is in his heart, the love that caused him to come into this world in the first place, the love that, that sent him here. But John highlights the fact that, that, that certain ones of these, and there's seven of them that, that, that we're, we've been looking at, seven of these miracles are, are conveyed as signs, and each one signifies something of Jesus' power and glory, and each one reveals something about who he is and what he can do. And that's what you get when you read the Gospels, and particularly John, but all of the, the Gospels. And it's important in our Bible reading uh, that we have a healthy balance between Old Testament and New Testament. And in our Old Testament reading, there are certain things that will be more profitable to us on a daily and regular basis, and I would highly recommend Psalms for devotional use. The historical books, of course, provide us a lot of background. There's so much rich material there. But in the New Testament, sometimes there's some, some of us that may be more into to Paul. We might like Romans or Galatians or Philippians. We might have our favorite few verses. But it's important that we read the Gospels because in the Gospels, we get to know Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We get to know him personally much better. And our goal, isn't it, to try to, to be like him? Is that our goal? Is that your goal? It's my goal. And so we want to see how he responds to life. We want to hear the words that he, that he spoke. And uh, so each, each one of these signs reveals something about who he is and what he can do. And there's a progression that we've observed as we've gone through this. Uh, these, these first five signs that we've looked at up to last week and today being number six. We talked, first of all, about Jesus turning the water into wine. And we saw that as a miracle of provision and it signified and demonstrated Jesus' power over the basic chemical processes of nature. And it was relatively uh, 
low on the totem pole as far as its importance to the outcome of, of, of someone's overall life. But we talked about the fact that in that moment, Jesus saw that social situation, the potential shame on the part of that bridegroom and that family, and, uh, and intervened by overcoming, in some miraculous way, overcoming the, the processes of nature turning water into wine. Then there was the healing of the nobleman's son that, that exceeded the father's expe- expectations and demonstrated that Jesus' power and Jesus' ability to heal was not limited by distance, by time and space. There was no obstacle to his power. The third one we looked at was Jesus healing the lame man. And Jesus demonstrates here, in one sense, his, his power over the ravages of time because this man had been, had been crippled for 38 years. And normally, when someone's been down that long, we conclude that they must be out. That's just the way it's going to be. Jesus demonstrates that he's not incurable. He has power over that infirmity. And we see he cranks it up a little bit, a more profound and, 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 and a more dramatic miracle. Then there's the healing of the 5,000 where Jesus demonstrates his, his power over the old creation and manipulates the natural processes in order to accomplish that miracle and provide for the needs of those 5,000, actually ten to fifteen to 20,000 people with women and children. The fifth one we looked at last week, Jesus walking on the water. And uh, he demonstrates that he was master of the forces of nature, the Lord of the new creation, and that he can avert in any situation in our lives what might seem to be an inevitable disaster. And also we learned last week he demonstrated that we can feel safe and we don't have to fear when we're in his presence. And then today we look at miracle or sign, rather, number six, the healing of a man born blind. And so in this one, we see he kind of cranks it up a bit. He, he ups the ante because he's restoring sight to a man who was blind from birth. Uh, and again, that's the kind of situation where someone being born blind from birth, something is missing, something is not connected, something is, is, is genetically wrong, and they're just going to be that way. And so he demonstrates them that the most severe and seemingly irreversible physical infirmity, such as blindness, that, that he has power over those things, but also he demonstrates his ability to deal with the greater obstacle. And we'll talk about this, and maybe it'll tie in some of what we've sang and what we've gotten so far today, and that is the, the scourge of spiritual blindness. And it is said that there is no one so blind as he who will not see, right? And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, there are some blind people in society around us that are blind physically but obviously have great depth of insight. And we could just start naming names. And I know you'd start with musicians, Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles. But, you know, think about, about there, there, are, there are poets and philosophers and scholars and, and all kinds of people who, have, because they're, they're not limited by their physical blindness, but there are people like you and me who can see very well. Some of you have better than 20-20 vision, but yet spiritually we are blind as a bat. Now, thank God we're not being asked to choose between one or the other. We're given the opportunity with the one to find the other and to, and to, to experience that spiritual sight. And then next week we'll f- finish the seven on, and we'll look at the raising of Lazarus. I won't, I won't do a spoiler alert on that, but uh, you kind of know where that one's going, right? 
Uh, now, the sixth sign, this man born blind, obviously it's a difficult case. Uh, one of the marks in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah would be that he would be one who restores sight to the blind. Isaiah twenty nine eighteen says, In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, 5 says, And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. Now, so we're dealing with this, when we, we just read about it, the, the, the big dramatic thing that happens is Jesus healing uh, this blind man, blind from birth. It's a big miracle. It fulfills his role as being that, that prophet, that, that Messiah, as prophesied uh, of in the Old Testament. But there are four things I want to look at, and the first one is probably going to be the one we'll spend the most time at. And I, there, are four, there are four things I want to just pull out of this passage, out of this chapter today. And the first one, number one, is this, and it, it is, we'll, we'll term it like this, the great question. Say the great question. The great question. And now, the great question, we could, we could frame it in terms of a, a, a murder mystery, if you will. Who done it? Who done it? Or who sinned? Who's, who, who messed up? Who, 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 who's at fault? Why did this happen? We, we read this a text, you know, and he says, so notice what Ray says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. The first thing that is, that, that his disciples say is, Rabbi, who done it? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There has to be a reason. Some of you are too hung up on that, trying to place a reason on everything that happens to you in your life and happens to people around you. Get over it. You can't find the reason for everything. But we always want to ask that question. And we have this position of knowing Jesus' response because we read the text and we know what happens. But, but let me tell you something. Think about it for a moment. This is a big, this is a great question with regard to human suffering and calamity, isn't it? Come on, isn't it? Because it's Based upon this, this thread of thought that weaves its way through our culture, and it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and it comes to us through, through in, in Western civilization, and it comes to American culture, particularly through the Calvinistic uh, perspective of Christian thinking, and then there, there we'll see there's some other Eastern philosophical corollaries that go with this that, that have worked their way into our culture, and it, we, we think in life, we think of life in these terms, that when you do good, if you do good, you are guaranteed a good outcome. It's just supposed to be that way. And when you do bad, you are guaranteed a bad outcome. It's the way it is. That's the way the world works. So if you're doing well, you must be doing something. You say, you must be doing something right. You know, sometimes somebody will say, you must be living right. And sometimes when people say that, someone, the person that they're saying it to obviously is not. It's a cliche. So, you know, if you're, so you're doing, you must be doing something that, that that person, if they're, if they're, if they, if, if, if they, if they're rolling in, in, in cash, then they, they, they're doing something right. Of course, we know that's not always the case, but then when people, but here's the, the flip side of it with regard to other people, when people are suffering and going through stuff, we look at them and we say, they must have blown it. They must have done something wrong. And then in your own consciousness, when you are going through stuff and when you are struggling and when you are going through a serious, through, through a serious trial in your life, or a test, the enemy will come to you, right? Won't he? And say, see there, you, you know God is not pleased with you. God must, must be mad at you. You must have done messed up somewhere. It's deeply embedded in our culture. 
the whole Calvinistic work ethic kind of is it's like, well, people that work hard will be will do well, and people, and then if you don't, then you're not working hard. And then and we we look in the world around us, and there's a sense there's a sense in which that's a general principle that kind of works. And you can go into the Proverbs, into the Old Testament, and yes, there's a, just a body. Of, I mean, common sense kind of tells us that you work hard and save your money, you'll have some. If you if you treat people right, you'll generally be you know be a pretty likable and well liked person. You can read Dale Carnegie's How to Win friends and influence people and you might do pretty well but but there are always the outliers you, we we have to if we're going to think properly if we're going to think biblically we have to understand that that is those are general principles but the 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 devil is in the details if you will and the exceptions are are are, are myriad the receptions are uh, exceptions rather are all over the place and, and you know, but, but this idea is deeply embedded in our culture. It suggests this: that life is fair. Nowhere does the Bible maintain that life is fair. Life is what life is, and life is where one finds it. God is good. It's not that life is fair, but that God is good, no matter whether you realize it, whether you seem to be feeling or experiencing that. And the dark side of this is that those who suffer will then tend to be always held culpable for their own pain and their own calamity. And it can make us uncaring and uncompassionate towards people because it's always, well, you know, they made their bed, they got a lie in it. I'm sure this man that we're looking at in our text this morning is really grateful that Jesus doesn't come off at him like that. I'm sure the man that, that even though Jesus set the brother, the brother by the pool of Siloam, the, 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 I mean the the, uh, the pool of Bethesda, the brother that that had been crippled for 38 years, and we talked about Jesus challenged him. He said, "Do you do you want to get well?" And and, and there was probably some self pity there, but it's good that Jesus didn't decide to to to. To, to do an inquisition in that moment and say, well, you know, there must have been a reason for this. And it's wonderful because sometimes you come to God and you have needs in your life. It's, 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 it's a wonderful thing because of the grace and mercy of God. When you come down to the altar, get hands laid on you, prayed for. When, when, you, when someone prays for you on the phone or somebody comes alongside you and tries to, to walk you through a trial, it's wonderful that they don't have to take a catalog of your mistakes and try to ascertain what you did wrong. Because some of the sicknesses, many of the sicknesses and many of the, the challenges and much of the pain that you'll encounter in life probably have nothing to do with what you have done. That's not to, that's not to, to advocate irresponsibility. But that's the truth. Because what happens is that there's even, we end up with a, a, a you, know, you know what karma is. The, the Hindu and Buddhist concept, and, and karma is, is, is popular in our culture, even when not evidently stated. It's woven into our, our popular speech, and you know what goes around comes around. Some of you wish that were true, and some of you are glad that it's not. Did you hear what I said? Some of you wish that was true, because there's somebody you wish that karma would slap upside the head. But there are many of you that know that where you have been and what you have done and what you have, what you, the seeds you have sown, you are praying that by the mercy of God, that that's not true. It's popular. Karma maintains that this, this thing that the, that the immortal soul must go on working out in subsequent lives what it failed to get right in the present. Some of you have seen that sitcom, My Name is Earl. That's what that sitcom is all about. Earl, I guess, has been a rascal previously, and he's, now he's trying to, to make everything right, and, and it, a lot of comedy is found in that because it's kind of hard to do. 
You fix what you can, but you can't fix everything. And in the Old Testament, it's what we would term as conventional, conventional wisdom. Actually, you would, you would refer to it as the status quo. Walter Brueggemann, in his book on the Psalms, writes about, about this idea of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, which is the, the, the primary scheme of most of the Psalms. And he says the problem with the orientation phase is that's when the writers celebrate, hey, everything is good and I'm happy. And he says the problem and the challenge with that is that that mindset tends to accrue to the status quo to the people that kind of on the higher end of the spectrum, the people that got it going on, but there's always the exception to that. And then there are a lot of people that get left out of that, except for the fact in biblical terms that you can relate that to an eschatological perspective. In other words, that in the end, we know that no matter what our present plight is, all of those affirmations and, 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 and confessions about what God is and who he is and how good life is, whether you experience it now, that's, that's your, that's your ultimate end and your goal and your purpose, what you're headed towards. But it's conventional wisdom. It's the status quo. And the whole book of Job essentially was written to counteract that and to serve as a counterpoint, a balance to that, because that's the Old Testament. That's why as Christians, I I don't want to bless people when they get married with Deuteronomy 28 and stuff. And I, the people got into doing that. You know, blessed are you in the field and then, and then the curses. I'm so glad that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us, for it is written that cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. I'm not under the blessings or the cursings of the Old Testament because the blessings have been fulfilled in Christ and the curses were born on the cross. And so I'm not under that kind of, because that's like, hey, if you, if you live, if you're really good, you're, then nothing will ever go wrong. And if you're bad, then everything will go wrong. And you know and I know that that's not how life works. The psalmist in many places decries the fact that, wow, the prosperity of the wicked, I don't get this. I'm trying all I can to live for God and do the right thing. And I, I, got, it, I got it hard where these rascals who are basically shaking their fists in God's face and doing everything they want, they got everything they want. They're healthy and strong and everything is good. I don't understand. And then he says, then I entered the sanctuary of God and then I, I understood. When I got in the presence of God, I realized what I see now is not their end. But Job is all about that because Job goes to this thing. God allows, allows Satan to, to afflict Job. And, 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 and that's a, a conversation that goes on beyond human ears. It, it's revealed to us later, but it's something that God is doing and that God allows. And then all of Job's friends come along him. And basically the rest of the book is basically saying, come on, Job, come clean, man. You got to been done messed up somewhere. This stuff don't happen to good people. And, and see, you and I know that as, as, as good Christians, when sometimes when we're going through trouble, troubles and, and, and trials, people come alongside it. Well, you know, you're right with God. There's something you need to repent of. And sometimes that's a good conversation to have because sometimes, because sometimes that, that might be the case. But conventional wisdom says that, that if you do good and if you're righteous, you'll always be uncategorically unqualified blessed and if and if you and if you do bad you'll get bad and Jesus Jewish contemporaries and even his disciples they're steeped in the status quo they're steeped in that kind of thinking it, it, is, it takes biblical motifs from the Hebrew scriptures and, and it moves them into the realm of superstition just as in our culture it becomes superstition it becomes karma since this man is born blind, it, somebody had to mess up because things couldn't just happen because of the presence of sin in the world. Things couldn't just happen because of a genetic mutation or some sort of, of, of accident of DNA. So it must be his parents. His parents done sinned. 
Or it got deeper than that. Because they said, notice they said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man? or his, now he, when, when, was, when, when did he get blind? So, so there was, what do you mean? Did he sin? He was born blind. But see, many folks, many Jews around this time embraced what is a Platonic concept and not a biblical concept. The, the idea of prenatal existence. Plato and the Greeks maintained that human beings existed from the, all of us existed from the Garden of Eden and then were kind of put into our bodies. The Bible doesn't teach that. We, the pre-existence of the soul. That was a, a Greek concept, but they, they would embrace that. That gives, so maybe in his prior, before he was actually born into the world. You know, it allowed the possibility for him to have sin prior to conception. Man, that's a heavy responsibility. But then the other Jews said, well, you know, maybe it was, he sinned in his mother's womb. Some of you moms who've carried babies, you say, yes, this baby that I carried sinned, kicking me, angry, it hurt, I didn't like it. But, but you know, Psalms 51.5, the psalmist proclaims that I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is not making a theological statement there as much as he is poetically expressing his own awareness of the depth and, and the, the thoroughgoing uh, permeation of his being in his, in, his, in, his, in his innate sinfulness. He's not trying to propound a doctrine of, of pre, prenatal sin. He's being poetic, not literal. But with regard to parents, the Old Testament did stress this idea of the sins of the father being visited upon subsequent generations. There was this idea. William Barclay writes, this is the idea that children inherit the consequences of their parents' sin is woven into the thought of the Old Testament. And he goes on the quote, he says, when God says, I'm the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. I visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And he goes on to say that Isaiah talked about that as well. And so, and the conclusion is that what we see from the Old Testament is that in one sense, when a man sins, he sets in motion a train of consequences which has no end now i but that is under the old covenant and i will tell you this that for us as 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 men and women living our lives before god yes what we do in this moment has consequences generationally going forward much of which is natural in 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 its scope i because i've had people ask me you know uh people come to you and they say you know do you believe in generational curses? And you may, and that's not a, or it's not a, it's not in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. It's not a central tenet of Orthodox Christianity. So you can, we can disagree, we can have varying degrees on that. I would tell you that under the New Covenant, I do not. And I'll tell you why I do not. Now I believe that the kind of curses that happen is that when you are a bad parent, then you, you your children are going to grow up wild. That's not a generational curse. That's just cause and effect. If you don't water your grass, it's going to die. And if you don't put some weed and feed in it, you're going to get dandelions going up all through your front lawn. You say, Pastor, is that you saying something about your house? No, mine is good. You understand what I'm saying? I, I don't believe in generational curses. I think, because again, I, I believe that the message of, the, of grace and the message of the cross is that Christ, again, 
Galatians 3.23, you know, he redeemed us from the curse and the curses of the law. So, I, And that's why some of you have, may have come from horrendous family situations and you are an absolute jewel. And your life is blessed and you're walking in the grace of God because God is not holding you culpable for the mistakes that your grandfather, that some of us don't even know our grandparents. And many of us, our great, our grandparents, our great grandparents were, were, were slaves and went through all kinds of stuff. And the generations before that going back all over the world and places. I don't believe that under grace, God is holding us accountable in that way. And I don't believe that in those curses. But in the Old Testament, there was that idea, the, the old covenant and God's covenant with Israel, that was a part of it. And so they're thinking about this. And, and, and we find that, I, I think that Jesus as Lord of the new creation turns some of these notions on, on their heads while there's, there is a consequential aspect of, of, of human sin and, and grace and, and what have you. Grace trumps retribution. Mercy trumps retribution. And, 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 and see, because mercy is this. Grace is God giving us proactively what we do not deserve. And mercy is God withholding from us that which we do deserve. You don't deserve the free gift of the righteousness of Christ. You don't deserve for God to look at you and see the righteousness of his son Jesus, but that's what you got. That's the gift of grace. You do deserve death. You do deserve punishment. You do deserve the wrath of God, but that has been withheld from you by the mercy of God. And so there is this consequential aspect of human sin. Grace trumps that and Human beings don't necessarily get what they deserve on either side of the coin. And I'm kind of glad about that. Do you hear me? I hope I haven't ruffled your feathers too much. But the disciples are interested in the cause. Who done it? We get gossipy like that, don't we? Oh, you know, uh, they're they sick. I wonder what, I, bet, I know they so used to be some. I don't know, God wouldn't just, look, look what God done put on them. Look at this, they struggle, uh-huh, yeah, God done fix them. And some of us sit around and wait for God to, to, to get people for the stuff that we don't like that they did. We get that way, that's our human nature. I, I, some of you, maybe a little younger, remember the movie, well, actually, it's old now, Tommy Boy, Chris Farley. And this is, I just remember these lines, these scenes, because it was, because, because, uh, what was his name, Richard? The David Spade character had this like Dodge Dart or something, this real cool vintage car, and 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 Tommy Boy, he uh, he was fooling around and 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 the door got hit by a truck and bit back the, the driver's side door, and then he's trying to close it and then he leaves it and then and then I, I just remember then David is looking at it in, in in amazement like his car and he walks and says and, and this is what he says, what did you do? What did you do? And that's what we want. That's we look at people. What did you do? Where did you mess up? Yo, I wonder. You probably didn't have the prayer life I thought you had. I thought you were walking with God. What did you do? You, you hear me? And maybe if that's not stated, it's implied. But here's the point. In our text this morning, Jesus uses this instance to drive home this kingdom truth, this new creation reality. That there is, understand this, there is a link. Between sin, sickness, misery, tragedy, and calamity, there is, there is an absolute link. It's real. But it is first and foremost because of sin in the general, the generic, the organic sense that evil occurs and continues to occur in our world. 
It doesn't mean that any person's sickness or suffering is necessarily tied to their personal sin. To conclude that is, first of all, presumptuous on our part, and secondly, probably much of the time misguided and flat-out wrong. Tom Wright writes this. He says, thinking like this is a way of trying to hold on to a belief in God's justice. If something in the world seems unfair, but if you believe in a God who is both all-powerful, all-loving, and all-fair, one way of getting around the problem is to say that it only seems unfair, but actually isn't. There was, after all, some sort of secret sin being punished. This is a comfortable sort of thing to believe if you happen to be well-off, well-fed, and healthy in body and mind. In other words, if nobody can accuse you of some previous sin. Yeah, our sense of justice sometimes is too finely tuned. And oftentimes it is too focused on the other person and not on ourselves. And he goes on to maintain that Jesus resists any such analysis of how the world is ordered. Because the world, and, and, and it moves us beyond simplistic thinking, and, and the subject requires and, and warrants a lot of discussion, the, the, the issue of why good things happen to bad people, and more poignantly and more close to home, why bad things happen to good people, why the righteous suffer, why is there so much sickness and, and, and calamity and tragedy in the world? Why do innocent people endure so, so many horrific things in this life? And that, this whole thing of, of theodicy, it's called, this whole, this, whole, this whole discussion goes on and on and on, and great philosophers and biblical theologians and, and apologists and all kinds of people go back and forth and have for, for millennia, really, but in, in recent years more than ever, out of, coming out of the Jewish community, the, still grappling with the pain of the Holocaust and the why and the how could a, a just and loving God let this happen. We go through this, and, and, but Wright says we, we, Jesus resists any such analysis of how the world is ordered. The world is stranger and darker than that, and the light of God's powerful, loving justice shines more brightly than that. To understand it all, we have to be prepared to dismantle some of our cherished assumptions and to let God remake them in a different way. I'll put it to you like this. On one hand, we could say that God is good and the world is a safe place for us as citizens of the kingdom of God because we live under the, the covering of his grace and his love. Safe doesn't mean that we're beyond all peril and all, all earthly pain and tragedy. But the reality that we come to and that the disciples seem to be with their rose-colored glasses oblivious to is the fact is this, the world is a dark and dangerous place in one sense. That's why I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to continue to propagate a, a Christian doctrine that says, hey, Christianity is like the, this is the, the joy luck club. Nothing but joy, nothing but luck. And, you, you, know, you, if you, if you, you know, when you're really walking in with Jesus, you're, you're going to have everything you need all the time. There are many of you in this room, if I would preach that, you'd jump up and say yes, because that's what churchy people do. But some of you in your heart of hearts, you know that ain't true because you know there were times when you had done your level best and had tried your hardest and things did not work out for you and you did not understand why. But by the grace of God, you kept trusting him and kept looking to him because you knew he had a better plan and he was going to get you through. 
but we may as well get off that train and you know we could have a lot more people in here if we if we if we sell that that madness and that's what this text is helping us understand life is not that simple don't you wish it was i can't we can't reduce everything down to a cliche or an aphorism or 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 three easy sayings or some little some little quip one bible verse taken out of of context because you can go in the psalms and you see says i've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread that's a hyperbolic statement on even on the part of the psalmist and then you go through the rest of the psalms where he is where the various writers are stark raving mad because of what is happening to god's people at the hands of their enemies and they pray their anger and they spew their anger and they vent it to god and one reader I was reading, he was saying, this is the deal. There are a lot, we, we edit that stuff out of the Psalms, and we don't like to address that. But the reason why it's there, one of the reasons is to remind you and I that we live in a world that's filled with evil and characterized by opposition. And you know what? you got to gear up for it. you got to gird up the loins of your mind, as the Bible says. you gotta, you got to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. You've got to put on the whole armor of God so that you can, you can resist the wiles, the tricks of the devil. Life is not simple. Life is not easy. Life is complex. And so it, life defies simple answers. Only simpletons can get by on simple answers. You are intelligent thinking people and that's why there will be cognitive dissonance among us sometimes with regard to the way things are in the world around us that doesn't mean we don't go on loving and trusting and serving and walking with God and and his son Jesus Christ but we understand that this that the world is is not some sort of moral slot machine where you put in a good coin and pull the slot and you and you get something good or you put in an evil coin and pull the slot and you get something bad Actions do have consequences. Good things often do happen as a result of good actions. Most of us are living our lives, and the trend is that way, that because of the good things, that the good seed that we sow and the good actions and the the proper and prudent steps that we take, the way that we live our lives according to godly wisdom and common sense sometimes and, and, and rational thinking, they produce the fruits of righteousness and rationalism and good things. Some things just make sense. Buy things you can't afford, you won't be able to pay for them. Buy things, live within your means, you'll do good. And that's, 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 those things are true. Kindness produces gratitude. Bad things happen through bad actions. Drunk, drunkenness causes car accidents. Neither is inevitable. Some drunks drive and... The guy used to live next door to me in Carson. I, I always knew when he was nice because he would, he would just drive real slow. <laughs> and he would drive on the street, turn into a driveway, and he'd get out and he'd say, how you doing? Never, you know, and then then others, you know, you know, get popped. But neither is inevitable. You do good things, and sometimes you get slapped in the face. Sometimes you get you get you get all kinds of bad. What's the word? Consequences. Um, this is taking a long time, but I hope you're getting this. I hope you're with me. So, anyway, so, something that's stranger and more mysterious and is going on here and that is that the chaos and misery of this present world is it seems as Tom Wright says the raw material out of which the loving wise and just God is making his new creation see cause versus purpose these guys are looking for the cause Jesus says here's the purpose now I'm going to blow through the rest of this in about seven eight minutes hopefully and I can get you out of here because we went long today. We started a little late, but we're having a good time, ain't we? I don't have, now I don't have this Dorcia here to, to pay to say, take your time. So I'm just taking my time anyway. But I hope you're getting something here. Jesus isn't interested in the cause. And for the most 
part, you and I shouldn't be either. Sometimes there's a teaching moment to help people to make better choices going forward, to help people remedy the wrongs that need to be remedied and to affect repentance where it needs to take place. But Jesus is more intent on this, revealing the purpose of their suffering rather than the cause. You hear me? Isn't that great? Because the purpose lies beyond the finite realm of our understanding. In this case, he says, here's the purpose. He, he totally, he says, the disciples said, Lord, Jesus, he says, Master, who did this? Why is this this way? He says, it's not either or, it's neither nor. The man didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. Now, in the absolute sense, since he's been born and blind, he sinned. And the man's parents, because all human beings are born sinners. But he's saying, with regard to this issue, that they didn't sin. In regard to this issue, their sin, their guilt is not what brought this about. But here's the thing. Here's, there's a purpose in this. And the purpose is that the works of God might be revealed and made manifest. And in our lives, when we go through things that we can't explain, the one thing we can look forward to and hope, and one thing we can, we, can, or we can hope in and we can place our trust in is the fact that no matter what you're going in, and I say this, and it's difficult to say this sometimes when you speak and you know the pain that people are in in the moment, and it's because sometimes I know that when you're hurting that you need more than platitudes, but this isn't a platitude, this is an attitude. This isn't a platitude, this is a truth. And the truth is this, that for the child of God, There is no pain, no struggle, no trial, no tribulation, no challenge, no sickness, no loss that is wasted. Everything is for the purpose that God's works might be made manifest in your life and in the world around you. And so what we need to do as God's people is concentrate on healing, on serving, on loving, on ministering, compassion, relief, and healing to hurting folks rather than trying to ascertain the cause and figure out why they're going through what they're going through. We need to purge our worldview of this karmic thinking. Because karma is not a biblical concept. We live in a complex world darkened by sin, under the sway of sickness, suffering, and injustice. But Jesus looks beyond the faults of people to see their needs. We have a God who is at once just and merciful and who has a plan for us far beyond our contention, our, our comprehension. rather. Now then, real quick, the second thing is this. Oh, I went to all four. I just want to do one at a time. Thank you. Um, the urgent mandate. Now, real quick, just want to look at the text. Jesus replies to his disciples. He says, it's neither this man nor his parents who sinned, but so that the works of God might be manifest in him. And then look at what he says in verse 4 and 5. You're going to get this real quick. He says, as long as it's day, he says, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, get this real quick. Two things. Number one, first of all, the reason we must do whatever we're going to do now is because in Jesus' view, life is not karmic. There is no reincarnation. You don't come back around. You're not going to be born in the next life as a raccoon or something and have some subsequent chance to try to not go in people's trash cans at night or, or that kind of or be, be reincarnated as a skunk and don't stink nobody and you'll be a good skunk and then you'll be born back up the chain or something. That is not the way it happens. You won't have the opportunity to come back. You get one chance at this life. And that's not to diminish grace and mercy because we will fail and we will mess up. But it reminds us of that what we are to do. We should, whatever, whatever it is we're supposed to do, we need to do it with a kind of expediency. We need to be about what we're about because 
because it is appointed, the Bible says, unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Folks used to say in church when I was growing up, they used to say, uh, they would say only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And he's saying, listen, there's no other chance. It's not about sinning in your prior life and coming back and getting another chance. Here's the deal. You get one chance. Jesus is saying, I'm in this earthly, in this body, this one time. I'm going to go back to be with the Father. You guys are walking with me this one time. And Jesus in his earthly ministry and his disciples, their tenure in the work of the kingdom, it's finite. He says, so we need to get on with it. And then secondly, he, notice that he doesn't say, I always thought it said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Jesus says, look at your Bibles. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. He says, we, not I. That means, who's we? You and me. Who we is? All of us. We must work the works of the Father who sent Jesus. That's all of us. That's his disciples, and by extension, it's us. While it's day, for the night is coming when no one can work. So basically, and I'm gonna, what I'm going to do, i gotta, I got I to gotta run this message in the next week because i got to finish it out, but I don't want to keep you no longer. But I'm going to tell you what Jesus is saying. You know, you can get hung up about worrying about why this is that way and why that is this way. Why people is crazy and why the world is messed up and why I'm going through this and why he going through that, what they done done wrong, this and that. You know, or you can do like Jesus is saying, listen, what you do is realize that everything you see around you, every pain, every heartache, every, every challenge, every trial, every tribulation, every, every bit of darkness in the world around you is, a, is an opportunity for the light of God to shine through you and for the power of God to demonstrate his purpose in and through you and the lives of people around you or for a, an opportunity for God to work in your life and an opportunity for you through faith and trust to discover him in ways you've never known him before. As here's the thing. He says, whatever it is you're going to do, let's get on with it. Some of you, God has called to, to, to various aspects of, of ministry, and you're waiting for something. I don't know what you're waiting for. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm just trying to get myself together. You know, you can't get yourself together. That's why you're not together now, because you've been trying to get yourself together for the last 40 years, and you can't get yourself together. Sometimes you get, God will get you together when you just step out on faith and do what he tells you to do. God, some of you have a song to sing. I'm going to tell you something. You, 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 better, you better sing it now while you got a voice. <laughs> some, of, some of you, got a, a, there's, a, there's a word that God has given you for the church. You want to you you make sure that you tell that word where you still got, got a voice to, to, to speak it and the mind to think it and the, the legs to stand on to proclaim it. You've got a work to do and, and do the work now because, you know, I know, you know, you know, God is, you, know, you, can be, you can be 113 years old and say, God called me to, to, to work with the young folk. And you know, I'm still praying, asking God to release me into that. And God, God said, you know, you're 113 years old. Uh, you, now you got to work with the old folk. <laughs> or you're going to work up in heaven, you got something to do. But, you know, it's like, whatever it is we're going to do, because we got to work while it's day. Because, you know what, no matter how dark it is still, there is the light that is shining around us and the opportunity for us to do the work of God. And so we got to do get, get in the process. You won't always be able to reach out and touch lost, hurting, and lonely, broken people like you can in the present moment. If you're going to reach out through friendship and bring people alongside you, build relationships, do it now. If you're going to get more involved in the church, if you're going to join the church, if you're going to serve in the church, do it now. If you're going to give your life wholeheartedly to God, do it now. We, we must work the works of, of him who sent Jesus while this day for the night comes when no one can work and then he 
spits in the mud, makes some, spits in the dirt and makes some mud and puts it on the guy's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And Jesus, and the man goes and does it, and it says he came away seeing. The miracle happens. The miracle happens. And uh, what I didn't get to address today, maybe I'll leave off, is the after effects, the aftermath. Because what happens is, and I'm, I'm closing right now, but what happens is that we have, so we got, you can get these points. We had the great question, the urgent mandate, the marvelous miracle, which is the display of Jesus' power over every infirmity and every sickness, even those that are congenital. You know, it's like the, a lot of skeptics criticize a lot of faith healers because they always do the easy stuff. You know, you get people who's all, you know, the, the, the guy will say, you know, the Lord showed me that you have one leg shorter than the other. So really, I didn't know that. And they sit you down. I've seen this done. They sit him down in a chair and they say, see there? And they sit there and they say, oh, my gosh, I know. And they pull the leg and they say, oh, my leg's the same. You know, but they, they, someone asked this question and, and I'm just being real because this is what skeptics and in the discussion between atheists and the, particularly the rabbit and, and vicious new atheists and, and apologists, these kind of, how come your God never like restores missing limbs? You know, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, and, and those, those are challenging questions. In this miracle, though, this is not the easy one. This is not like, there's, there's no way, there's, there's no fluff about it. This is a hardcore, creative God miracle. Marvelous miracle. And the man walks away blind from birth. None of this stuff ever worked, and all of a sudden it's working, he's seeing. And then finally, what happens is the stinging controversy and the benediction. Go back. The, 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 the stinging controversy because, and this is, we close. The Pharisees, steeped in legalism, basically want to nail Jesus for A, healing on the Sabbath, B, making mud on the Sabbath. That's like kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, and base, you know, that kind of thing. And so they, they call him man, they grill him, say all kinds of mean things. And then they call his parents, and his parents don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue, so they say, well, we don't, our son's grown, ask him. That's the way some of you grow. you got grown children, you say, hey, you know, they're grown, ask them, right? And then they call the man back, and then we see the man's perspective grows through this discourse, if you read the rest of the chapter, to finally at the end, he says, Lord, I believe, and he's fully committed because he understands that it's Jesus that's changed his life. But the issue at the end of the story has to do with the, here's the, the challenge. This blind man was given the ability to see, but the Pharisees are blind. And Jesus says, says, you know, the problem is that those of you who see but won't really see. And so spiritual blindness is the ultimate issue. So we want to make sure, don't we, as we've sung about and talked about spiritual blindness and God opening the eyes of our hearts, I believe that he does give sight to the blind as he turns the water into wine and all that stuff. But I also know this, that he wants us to have spiritual sight and to see. And some of that has to do with what we said today of seeing and understanding God for who he is and realizing that all the evil and all the suffering and the sin in the world, it's real, it's there, it's, there are enemies, we have enemies. That's why all that stuff in the Psalms about enemies, enemies, because it, you, God didn't want his people, historically, to have some sort of naive conception of the world is oh it's all it's all a happy good world and everybody's good if you treat them right they'll treat you right and most of the time that's right but you know everybody knows in the absolute sense that is not a guarantee so 
may God open the, the eyes of our hearts, but may we may God be glorified in our hearts today as we conclude the service, as we perceive Jesus as being that one who's able to give sight to the blind. Is anything too difficult for him is the question I want to ask you as you stand to your feet. Is anything too difficult for, for him? Is anything too hard for Jesus? Amen. All right. I, let's do this. Before we do the benediction, I want to, I want to pray with you. I want you to, uh, I want to ask you this. Bow your heads with me. I wonder if there's someone who would hear, here would say, Pastor, today, I hear what the Word of God says to me about pain, suffering, about blame, and purpose. And maybe, maybe, you, maybe you, you've been made to feel guilty, condemned, Maybe the enemy has really worked you because you've gone through something. And, and maybe there are people around you that have suggested to you that if you had been a better Christian, you wouldn't have or shouldn't have gone through that. Maybe you're going through something right now. Everything, just bow your heads and close your eyes. And, 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 so give me two or three minutes. We allow the Spirit of the Lord to, to move. We'll let you go. This, and I hope that you see, first of all, Jesus, in, your, in, in, the moment, in this moment in your life, Jesus is not coming to you. Jesus will not say, who sinned, you or your mama? Jesus, is, is, Jesus knows everything, but he's, he's, he is so beyond that. What he would say to you is that whatever you're faced with and whatever you're going through right now, whatever challenges you're working through, they are allowed in your life by the sovereign purpose of God so that the power of God and the glory of God and the grace of God may be manifest in your life. And so... Jesus would say to you, if you will allow me, I will, work, I, will, I will work the works of him who sent me in your life right now. And then for others of us, there's this other application, and that is that for some of you, that's what Jesus is saying. Quit looking around you. Quit looking at other people. Quit trying to figure folks out. Quit trying to figure stuff out and just jump in the game of living for God and living by faith. Quit trying to analyze it. Quit trying to attribute blame to people and even yourself. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you that you promised in an eschatological sense that you would dry every tear from, your, from our eyes. That, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a promise in the sweet by and by in the kingdom to come. But Lord, thank you that you don't wait to then to, to start to start cleaning up our, our, our situations and healing our pain and, and drying those tears that would stain our cheeks.